This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I am joined by a television broadcasting legend, Randy West. We will talk about his illustrious career as an announcer for some of the greatest game shows and talk shows in history. Randy has got some fantastic stories we're going to dive into. Also, I'll talk about what I am thankful for in this disturbing year. And now, The Nexus. Randy West is the definition of an entertainment veteran. He began as a radio broadcaster, eventually landing at KMGG Magic 106 in Los Angeles. It was his stepping stone to television announcing. You most definitely know Randy's voice. He has announced shows that have starred Howie Mandel, Ryan Seacrest, Dick Clark, Wig Martindale, Chuck Woolery, Bob Eubanks, Ray Combs, Mark Summers, Ben Stein, and other television icons. Randy's resume includes an exhaustive list of game, talk, and award shows, including Supermarket Sweep, Deal or No Deal, Weakest Link, Daytime Emmy Awards, and Nick's Kids Choice Awards. His television work continues, most recently on CBS's Big Brother. Randy got to work with the iconic Bob Barker, announcing CBS's The Price is Right during the 2003-2004 season. Randy continues his association with America's longest-running game show, performing during the past 17 years on The Price is Right live stage show, which now tours the country following successful residences in Bally's Las Vegas and Harrah's Atlantic City showrooms. Randy West is also a published author specializing in television history. His successful Johnny Olson, A Voice in Time book, will soon be followed up by a book of revealing backstage stories from his adventures in television. Randy West, welcome to the Nexus. Why, my goodness. Normally, you have to die for someone to speak so highly of you. <laughs> this is, uh, I'm very, uh, very appreciative. Thank you. I, Pleasure to talk with you, Art. You're very much alive, and I'm glad uh, you're very much welcome. Um, so, so much I want to talk to you about since I have been a television fan for decades. But I want to start out by asking about announcing. What are the duties of a television announcer? Well, obviously to read aloud. Somebody once said, you read aloud for a living, what's the big deal? And you know, it's, it's a little more than that, but it starts there, the ability to uh, read uh, without uh, saying um and ah, and without making mistakes, because there's no second take when a show is live or live to tape. Uh, in addition, you're, so you're expected to be, uh, how can I say this, sort of a sidekick to the host. Now, that sounds maybe like I'm elevating the job, but there are some hosts who will look at you through the, you know, the corner of their eye with a sort of a imperceptible look, you know, that says, help me here or, you know, give me something. And that's the way Ed McMahon used to work with Carson. Stay the hell out of it unless you get that look and then you know to feed a straight line or or to just forward the action or get him out of talking himself into a corner. So, you know, that's a part of the job that's not seen. And another part is uh, on game shows, particularly the announcer is expected to do the audience warm up. And that's not just because, hey, he should do the job. It's curiously a, a bit of the after contract, the union that represents talent, uh, when they were trying to increase the use of videotape and use, uh, how can I say this, to, to um, well, to 
forward their goals. Let's put it that way. If you hired an outside guy to do the audience warm-up, which is an important part of the whole product, if the audience isn't alive and receptive, uh, not only does the host stumble, but the folks at home don't know what's good and what's bad. They don't know when to laugh. That's the use of laugh tracks or applause. But the point being, the announcer was to do the warm-up because producers didn't have to pay a full salary to a warm-up guy. Believe it or not, the after code requires only a $50 bump in pay for a cast member to do the announce to do the audience warm-up. Now, there's only two after members on the set on a game show. You know, the contestants are civilians. The crew belongs to another union. So if a cast member does a warm-up, it costs $50. Now, the host isn't going to do it, so guess who? Mm. And you get the job sometimes, not necessarily for your great announcing ability, but for the talent of bringing an audience to the peak of, how can I put this, almost uh, orgasmic. Uh, level of reception for the show, the host, whatever. And uh, I'll mention names. Uh, Gene Wood, The Family Feud. Everybody who's a fan certainly knows of Gene Wood. Not the greatest voice in the world and not the greatest announcer in the world. Two different points, the tone of voice and skill in in reading with um, proper emphasis. But this man did the best warm-up in the history of all of television, as far as I'm concerned. He was fantastic, nothing short of it, and worked his ass off uh, and got the audience to a level that few other people could get them. So he built a career as an announcer, per se, because a cast member doing the warm-up cost nothing, $50, compared to bringing him in as a warm-up personality. What do you mean by, let's assume that much of our audience doesn't know, has not been to maybe a studio taping before, which is a shame I have, but I, I would love everyone to to be able to see shows in, in live and, and especially ones that you're announcing. But what um, what is a warm-up? Tell me about how, what you do in that. Well, I'll tell you the best warm-up guy other than Gene Wood was Johnny Olson. Now, I became uh, aware of this whole job. I was a neophyte. I'd never been in an audience until I went to a taping of a game show, Snap Judgment, in New York. And it was the wintertime. And people in New York are not necessarily noted for their friendliness and you know charm, uh, especially on a rainy winter's day. So they all pile, they're waiting in line. Then they finally get into the studio. They got coats and umbrellas and there's no place to put them except on their lap or on the floor. And it's, you know, it's just, they're all like, oh, tired and wet. And out steps this guy going, how's everybody? And this bundle of energy bounds onto the stage and starts to make a connection with people. And these New Yorkers melted you know, they were totally estranged from each other, and suddenly they're reacting together. Let, let me give you a, an example of that. If you are watching a movie in a movie theater with strange, you know, room full of strangers, a theater, you don't necessarily laugh out loud, and you know, you might giggle, you know, but you're not, you know, enthusiastic in your response. You're not effusive. But if you watch the same movie at home with your family, you'll be poking each other in the, you know, with your elbow and look at that. 
that? Holy shit. You know, you're very outgoing and responsive. So the secret is to get a bunch of strangers to react as if they're family. Loosen inhibitions. That's the job. And the way Johnny would do it would be to uh, you know, just run up the aisle, hand out dollar bills, sit on people's laps and make <laughs> silly jokes. You know, madam, are you single? Yes. Uh, are you waiting for your ship to come in? Don't wait too long for that ship to come in or your pier is liable to collapse. You know, it was G-rated, silly kinds of jokes, but people would laugh and giggle. And then he did something extraordinary. He would say, uh, where's uh, where's Tim? I know Tim is in the audience today. And he didn't know any Tim. It's generally a Tim. Or he'd say, oh, no, it's Jim, right? And some guy would raise his hand. Now, Jim, what do you do for a living? And suddenly, uh, let's say he's a butcher, okay? And where are you from? He's a butcher from Schenectady. And then he, who here likes steak? I mean, who really loves a good steak? Hands go up. Now, where, who are you? Your name is Timmy. What do you do for a living? Oh, oh, really? Bricklayer, whatever it is. Now, what's the best steak? What do you like? A T-bone? Well, let's go back to the butcher from Schenectady. Who here likes, oh, he says it's the ribeye. Oh, who here likes them? Suddenly, people, he's cross-pollinating. He's breaking down into Visions. He's uh, stirring the melting pot, if you will. I like that phrase. I never used that before. He's stirring the melting pot of a bunch of strangers. And then he starts, where's my cousin, Tim? Where's Uncle Joe? He's these people he picked out in various scenarios to get in their involvement. Suddenly, he's referring to them as family. And for people who are not necessarily New York or Los Angeles, you know, family takes on a different kind of feel. We're all family here. So that's another inhibition buster, if you will. So I've given you a long answer to a short question. No, no, no. And of course, for our um, historical purposes, I think Johnny Olson is most known for doing the the famous come on down from uh, The Price is Right. Isn't that correct? That's it. That was his phrase. Johnny retired or planned to retire in like 1969-70 and he was winding down the few shows that he was doing. It was a, a low point for game shows and he figured that's a great opportunity. He bought land in West Virginia. He and his wife were ready to build a home and Mark Goodson called the game show uh, uh, impresario and said, I have a new show in Los Angeles and you're the announcer I need. What do you mean? I mean, well, the show is a lot of prize descriptions. You know, The Price is Right is the longest commercial. It's just, you know, it just goes from one product plug to the next. Yes, there's games, but it's intensive. I've read that script for the season and it's a thick book and, you know, tell him what he could win. Now, what are these prizes? Now, what are these grocery items? It's constant talk. And Johnny had a way of just making it not sound like commercials. Just it was fun. And then, hey, he had a sing-songy kind of way of making it all work. And his warm-up was vital Goodson felt, and I agree, for that show, because if you think of The Price is Right, the show is shot with the audience in the background for a great part of it. People come on down, and now the whole audience is on camera. And if they're picking their nose, 
adjusting their bra straps, it's not a good television. It's not good for TV. So his job was vital and he needed Johnny and Johnny couldn't turn it down. His wife said, I'm not going to Los Angeles again. They had had a tough experience decades earlier. But Johnny, you go. I know you love the work. Hey, these shows come and go 13 weeks, 26 weeks. You'll be back with me in West Virginia. I'll (laughs) keep the, you know, the plans warm. And of course, 13 weeks, 26 weeks, 39 weeks, a year, two years, it lasted for the rest of his life. And he uh, died on his way to a taping. (laughs) And poor Penny, the wife, only came out over the 15 years approximately that he did the show, only came out here once or twice, and then one more time to accompany the body back east. She did not like L.A., did not like his being here, and she was a showbiz widow. And... uh, Handled it with, you know, a plum and, and charm, but uh, he worked himself to death and uh, he loved it. He truly did. Right. And he's the subject of your book, which I mentioned at the the intro. Um, and, you know, for someone like me, uh, I was a kid in the late 70s and in the 80s watching The Price is Right. The joke always was, you know, if you were sick and you got to stay home from school, you'd be able to watch that around 11 a.m. when I lived in the New York area. So it was always mm-hmm. a treat, even though I wasn't ever well when I saw it. I felt like it, <laughs> during the school year in the summer, it was different. Um, I'd still that that, you know, I would mesmerized by watching uh, Bob Barker and Johnny Olsen yeah. on that show. And it was just uh the you know the high water mark i felt of mm-hmm. game shows but then i also wanted to ask you am i correct in that i mean you're a you're a historian in television and and whatnot what would you say was the high water mark if there was one the golden age of of game shows on television well this is the 49th year of The Price is Right. And of course, it was a show before 1972, uh, back in the 50s and I guess early 60s, with a slightly heavier, denser format. Um, but as the shows go, that has the most number of years on the air, the most fans, the greatest recognition because it it uh, bridged three generations. Uh, so, you know, it, it's the granddaddy and, and the one all others are measured against. Uh, you know, there are others that are, uh, you know, right up there with it and win for other reasons, you know, for creativity or for uh, uh, best host for a format or, uh, you know, there's arguments could be made, but I think the price right is, is, the, is, the, is the, you know, the one to beat. It's the one to beat, but would you say uh, um, there was an, a particular era that was best with, with the seventies and eighties when the, the price is right was really in its prime. Was that the, the top era for game shows across the board? Or would you say the fifties where you had, you know, the, the scandals of the $64,000 question and um, 21 and all of that, or, or was it later? Was it something in the 21st century who wants to be a millionaire or whatnot? Is there a particular era that you think is the best, or maybe it's just your favorite? 
Well, the 50s, they're, they're logy, they're heavy, they're difficult, uh, they're not breezy, let's put it that way. The formats are, are required, they're dense, that's a better word, uh, because television was new. Tele- people didn't get TVs until 1950, some people 51, 52, and, uh, you know, it was still a learning curve in the 50s, although, you know, there was creativity behind it. I think the 60s, we uh, game shows really started to find their their uh, you know get their legs might be the way to say it. But in the late '60s, uh, television programmers started to look at demographics. There was no such thing as demographics. You know, people wanted to know how many folks were watching. That was tonnage. You know, total numbers. But in the '60s, Madison Avenue became fascinated with how older people are. They urban, rural, suburban. Are they uh, college educated? All this stuff we hear, you know, about it, especially in, in voting polls. You know, white women who've been to high school, you know, who live you know, all that nonsense became vital. And game shows suffered because game shows skew old. I mean, fifty plus, and for the most part, the greatest viewership is sixty-five plus. So Madison Avenue had no love for it. If you watch a game show today, you know, a lot of the advertising is for, you know, scooters that you ride in and then medications. My God, pharmacies are are keeping game shows alive, uh, playing to that older demographic. So my point being, the 60s were great, but uh, Madison Avenue killed it. The 70s, they came back with great fever and the Price is Right's revival of 72 was part of that. And if you go like mid 70s, I think that's when game shows were at their glitziest for that era. Now, that stuff wouldn't come today as being contemporary, but for its time, it was perfect. Today, everybody's in love with black floors, very uh, dramatic music, long pauses before you see the answer. You know, what's the price? Did he get it right? Now we get a close-up of the contestant. We get a close-up of the audience. We get a close-up of the host. We get a close-up of another piece of the audience. Then they finally reveal it. Um, You know, that's the style now. And I guess it plays because every show has seemed to borrow it. Uh, for me, it's just overdone. It's it's just too predictable and too formulaic. Uh, but that's what works now. And uh, who's to say who's right and who's wrong? For me personally, short answer: I think the seventies, mid to late seventies, was uh, the prime. And the daytime lineups, you know, as you say, staying home, you watch The Price is Right. And if you stay, there was another show and another show and another show and another show. It started two hours before Price and went for four more hours, five more hours after. And if you change the channel, all three networks were running game shows. So I have to say that. For that reason as well, the 70s were the high water mark. Yeah, I would say. I mean, I, it was a marvelous time. I, that's when I fell in love with game shows. The Joker's Wild, Tic-Tac-Doe. Um, there was that one where it was the Face the Music was on for a few years. It was mm-hmm. Name That Tune. I mean, it, on and on and on. I mean, you, you know, it just it, it didn't really let up. And I mean, I, yeah. I'm a huge music fan. I feel like I learned a tremendous amount as a little <laughs> boy just from those couple of music shows, Name That Tune, Face the Music. 
music that I watch. So, yeah, it, it's uh, and I always found it fascinating to learn years later. I think after The Price is Right, my favorite one was Joker's Wild. And I uh-huh. didn't learn until Robert Redford's quiz show that Jack Barry, the host, was a disgraced host from the, the 50s who was exiled for 20 years. So yeah. that was a neat kind of twist to that legacy. Yeah, he couldn't get himself uh, back on television uh, for, as you say, like 20 years. And uh, he took the fall for, you know, other people. All, a lot of those shows were rigged, but uh, he and his partner, Dan Enright, took took the fall for, for you know, all of them, the, the scapegoat. And uh, he, he had a tough ride. He, he was up in Canada and then drinking himself to death, he said in one TV Guide interview. And the only way he could get back on TV, no one wanted to touch him. Uh, he did a very smart thing. He bought a radio station, a small, tiny radio station in Redondo Beach outside of Los Angeles. And then he said, well, you know, if the FCC granted me license to own a radio station, obviously I'm not untouchable. The FCC approves of me. And there is quite a, you know, j- hurdles to jump for an FCC license. And that was a brilliant move. Hey, the FCC isn't, you know, thinks I'm clean. So what is your problem? Right. <laughs> yeah. And Joker's wild. And he and his partner, Dan Enright, partnered again, had Joker, had Tic-Tac-Doe, had Bullseye. And, you know, he was back in swing again. That is uh, that is marvelous. That is such great um, history. Well, I'm curious. Then I mentioned that you started in radio, but how did you get into television announcing? I went in with a gun, and I said, <laughs> "Yeah, <laughs> before metal detectors, you know." <laughs> uh, I was fascinated by the game shows. I happened to end up in Los Angeles, as you said, following a radio career, and that gave me the opportunity to be a contestant. Now, a lot of people want to be a contestant. They want to win the money, you know. They want to be on the show. They want. They want to be on TV. I just wanted to be closer. And that was an entry point, a way to at least be in, you know, under the lights in front of the cameras and in the middle of the action. So I appeared on nine different game shows, one on eight of them, uh, some, you know, very well for that. I got retired as a champion. I exceeded CBS's maximum on one show. Hmm. After nine shows, they started to realize, hey, this guy is, you know, a good contestant. We do run-throughs for new games. You know, you don't, if you invented checkers, you wouldn't know if it was good or not. Unless you know, somebody watched, you know, you had to watch somebody play it any game. So they invited good contestants, quote unquote, people who were, you know, outgoing and, and would express their emotions, be excited when they won, a little, you know, sad when they didn't, you know, win. So these players could make a show or break a show. And for $50, you'd go in and play these games. And the ones that succeeded through the run throughs and got sold to the networks, there was a pilot. And then I ended up doing uh, contestant work on a pilot, and it's a paid gig. You know, I got $300 from Goodson Todman to play a contestant. You don't win the money that's on the show because the pilot never airs. It's just an acting job. So suddenly I was, you know, further behind the curtain in the world that I loved so much. And ultimately, I uh, what did I do? Well, one of these runs-through sessions, you know, they want to make it like the game actually plays. So somebody reads the opening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the exciting game of puzzles and prizes. This is so-and-so, and here's your host. 
somebody would read that just to make the, you know, and it'd be applause to sort of, you know, make the thing real in an office. So I once said, can I read that? And it was no big deal. I mean, it's, you know, an office is 10 people there. And I read it well because I was a disc jockey, you know, and eventually I got to do that on a pilot and that went well. And then I found out there was an opening on a talk show and I went in there and sold this like a, you know, like a encyclopedia salesman. I would not let him say no. I just went in there and said, I can do this. I've done this. I know how to do this. I've watched it being done. I've seen it being done. And I got a shot. You know, okay, we're taping on Tuesday. We'll use you for the two shows we're doing Tuesday. But there's no promise beyond that. I said, that's great. Just give me a chance. And I got hired full time on that job. And once you have a, a resume, you know, some people start to trust you. You know, the first one is the tough one. And it's you've worked on, obviously, a lot of different shows and a lot of game shows, which we've been talking about. Why are people drawn to these shows? And would you say their popularity has remained consistent through generations? Oh, my God, yes. This is as old as broadcasting. When radio started, quiz shows were part of the early formats, along with, you know, soap operas and and variety and the great comedians. But game shows have been a staple of programming before television and right through television. And today we're having a resurgence, of course. Uh, you know, old titles coming back, Match Game and Pyramid and Sweet Supermarket Sweep and on and on and on. Um, why? Easy. Because people at home get to play along in two different ways. One, they want to answer the questions and solve the puzzle. And the other way they play along is if a show is well cast, meaning the proper contestants is part of that, uh, people will at home relate to put themselves in the place of the contestant. You know, I would have known that. I know that. Hey, I could have won that. Mm-hmm. Look at her. She's, oh, she, thank God, she's going to get it wrong or she got it right. Or they, you know, they relate. They're part of it. So two kinds of play along. One is emotional and then one is, is puzzle solving or question answering. Two different ways that people get involved. And that's very seducing. You know, if you can, the, the producers always say, if I could get someone to talk back to the TV, Bob Stewart, who created The Price is Right, he created Password, he created many, many, many hits that have survived to this day. Back in the 50s, he created these formats. And his words to me were, if I can get somebody to yell back at the screen, I've got them hooked. <laughs> so, you know, when you solve the puzzle aloud to, you know, to your family members or friends who are watching with you or even yourself alone, I hear people, oh, I know that answer. And, they, you know, they speak back to the TV. And if you get people doing that, you won. They're totally involved, immersed. And that's entertainment you know it's escapist and uh, it's it's fun and people again relate they want to win the car look at that i would have won that oh wow she got that right you know that's the stuff you hear and it's seducing it's very seducing and i and i think there's a lot to do with like i've noticed over the years the the prizes 
have well obviously there's a sh- there was a show 20 years ago that still endures to some extent is you know who wants to be a millionaire so that mm-hmm. really went over but i even noticed like in the 80s they they started having shows that the prizes got bigger and bigger and that got more seductive i, I recall in I, I think it was 1986 they did a like a summer run of the price is right in prime time where mm-hmm. Bob Parker was was the host but the 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 hook was the prizes were way bigger. I don't know if you recall this, but it was you know they were they were double, triple the value as they were on the daytime show, and and that was an allure, you know. And I think that that over time paved the way for. Um, shows like Millionaire and, and whatnot because people mm-hmm. like the money. They like the fact of being able to... I mean, that's why Pyramid, right, went from 20000 25000 to 100000 Um, it, You know, as, as inflation went on mm-hmm. and people were making more money, they needed to see bigger payouts to seduce mm-hmm. them. Is, is that yeah, and the higher the money, the more the tension, you know, the more drama. And uh, yeah, you know, any, who wouldn't want to win a million dollars? You know, who wants to be a millionaire is the great title of all time. You know, just it's who doesn't want to be a millionaire? Right. I mean, and, and like, so in 1956, 57, whenever it was on the $64,000 question, that was a ton of money. And you got that right. People were, <laughs> were working for 10000 a year. It was a good job. So, I mean, that that's, uh, and that's uh, incredible. Um, what would you say, uh, now you probably don't want to disparage anyone or anything like oh, that. Oh, I'll go ahead. But, go but ahead. I mean, are there shows that have been successful that you scratch your head at and say, how this was never going to work, and then it worked and it's been enduring or it did at least had a good run that you were puzzled because you thought that they were lousy i mean is there anything like that out there yeah uh, nothing immediately comes to mind but i know many times i've said this is crap you know (laughs) (laughs) but nothing um no no actual shows that that may have been you know subpar that you well i'll tell you you know um, this is uh, maybe maybe i shouldn't answer but i will anyway um there's a show that i did well, it started in the 1960s. I did it, and it's been on and off for decades and decades. I did it in around 2000, and it's back now. It's called Supermarket Sweep, and okay. Al Howard created this. He was a uh, a concert musician. He was an advertising uh, executive, and he created this idea of running wild in a supermarket, grabbing anything and everything you want. Wow. I mean, that's brilliant. You know, who doesn't want to run through a supermarket and not have to pay and just grab everything you want? And that thing has endured from 1960 to approximately 60 to today. Now, it's back today. It's a proven format. It's a winner. However, I think the host is miscast. Hmm. Leslie Jones is a uh, fantastic uh, comedian. She's from Saturday Night Live, for those who don't know. She's very funny and very talented. And uh, she was once a contestant on Supermarket Sweep, and she wanted to host it. And, you know, she's got the star power of attracting an audience. However, 
uh, as close as I came to announcing that job, she wanted to announce the sweeps. You know, here comes team one. They're headed for the back of the market, the giant wedges of cheese. Here comes team two down the meat aisle. She's grabbing five of those great sides of beef. You know, I did that for years and years, and it's wonderful, and it's fun, and I love the show, and I love the people involved with it. But when she said she wanted to do that narration, I, you know, job was lost. And I don't hold that against anybody, but I don't think she's properly suited for it. That's mm. all. Her style is different. And narrating play by play, you know, like a sporting event is uh, an acquired skill, you know, and I think the show needs that. Look at team three. Now she's got five. Whoa, she went over her limit. Team two just dropped the bottle. Oh, that's going to be a penalty. Look out now. All of that stuff helps the show, I think. And I agree. Yeah, and she doesn't do that. And as much as I love the producers, truly do, as much as I almost had the job, she wanted to do the sweep and God bless them, and, you know, for the decision they made. It makes sense. She's the star. Uh, but I think uh, I scratch my head, as you said. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, that's understandable. And I've certainly seen that with a lot of hosts over the years. And one host, though, who... You know, for those who are um, unfamiliar with Randy, he has a, a truly engaging social media presence that I learn a tremendous amount from all the time. And you have written very eloquently about the recently departed legendary Alex Trebek, who mm. sadly passed uh, a short time ago at age 80 from cancer. Um, what? can you tell me about knowing how difficult it is to be a host in general? How difficult was it in his last couple of years to actually soldier on and host? Yeah. Uh, he is, you know, I've worked with him. He's a wonderful guy, kind of wacky sense of humor and that's fine. It's just a little off kilter, but he's a dedicated pro you know, easy to work with, but what happened to him, you know, uh, and how he reacted to it is the ultimate in class and charm and courage and dignity. Dignity is the best word. He was in pain. You know, pancreatic cancer is a painful problem and he survived far longer than most people do and he was in great pain and sitting at home he was in even more pain he loved to come to the studio and do the show because it got him out of his you know put his mind somewhere else and he did that job he said I'll do it as long as I feel that I haven't compromised my professionalism and he did it to 10 days before he actually died and wow. I was there on set 10 days. Yeah, I mean, that's like, you know, that's just amazing. Right. Uh, and I was on set like months before that, my, almost a year before that. He, he lasted well over a year with the diagnosis. And he laid down between shows. There's normally 10 or 15 minutes between episodes. They do five in a day with 10 minutes in between to, you know, get a, a glass of water, change your clothes because it's another day, you know, and, and uh, talk to the producer about whatever's going on. But during those 10 or 15 minutes between episodes, he lie on the floor writhing in pain. Oh. He was truly, and people kept saying, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap production. We'll do this another day. Go home. 
And he says, no, I'm here for five shows. This is what I do for a living. This is, uh, I get a great pride out of professionalism and let's do this. Hmm. And somehow he, you know, rose above. He wasn't taking pain medication to my knowledge uh, to keep himself sharp. And he just went out and was, you know, engaged like a trooper, you know, the show must go on. And I have consummate respect for that. That is incredible. It's, it's not only was he such a legend, but I, I feel like that's such a, a, a learning experience of a, a tale to, of, of endurance to be able to witness how, um, far he he took this even in in that tremendous pain and it's uh is is someone like him and i mean obviously there have been legends who have been replaced and you know bob barker is still alive but he's obviously not doing the prices right is is someone could someone replace alex trebek you think somebody will and you know if they do it long enough they'll become the, the standard you know they'll be as accepted as Alex mm. if they get to do it for as many decades as he, as he did uh, yeah he'll be replaced it will be different yeah, I won't say it'll be better I won't say it'll be worse it'll be different and it won't be Alex just like Drew Carey is not Bob Barker right. but the show goes on and you know Chuck Wooler he hosted Wheel of Fortune before Pat Sajak and you know suddenly it pat owns it you know you can't imagine anyone else doing it but somebody else will so longevity has a lot to do with success it sounds like well yeah people get into habits they get into uh, you know television they don't turn on tv to learn or to study or to you know people turn on tv mostly for pure entertainment you know with no great subjects or escapism and you like your familiarity that's part of it you know you don't want to think and be uh, off foot you want to well comfort food a game show with this you know surviving format over years with the same host it's television comfort food and people love it it's macaroni and cheese right that's what i felt like again when i was a kid i i felt very comforted watching Tom Kennedy and Wink Martindale and Bob Barker, as we've talked about. I mean, it's obviously one might argue these are all middle-aged white men and they were not mm-hmm. diverse and all of that. And there's definitely an argument to be made in that regard. But mm-hmm. but they but regardless of their demographic, they they were soothing presences you know the mm-hmm. um the host of password he was betty white's husband it's i'm losing the alan ludden alan yeah. ludden I, I lost that for a second there all of these folks they they all were kind of cut from the same cloth in a way but they they had this avuncular presence that you mm-hmm. just you just looked for every day, right? Yeah, comfortable to watch and, and uh, an old friend, a familiar old friend. Yes. You know, reliable, never sarcastic, and, you know, always supportive and up and, you know, positive. And, you know, able to roll with whatever punches. These guys were, you know, mostly radio people back when 
you know, radio people had personality, you know, and they learned through that career and previous television work how to roll with whatever goes. Those game shows that you're talking about had no editing budget. There was no editing. You didn't stop tape unless somebody, you know, dropped dead on the show. And these people had the ability to walk through whatever craziness might happen. You know, somebody falls on the floor, somebody trips, somebody stumbles, somebody, it's all, they are able to make it all part of, ah, ha, 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 isn't that cute? That's wonderful. And, you know, let's continue the game. You know, whatever happened, happened. And they were able to flow with it. And it was all uh, avuncular. It was friendly. It was familiar. It was comforting. It was, uh, oh, look, uh, you know, a friend. It's like an old friend. People turned into Bob Barker. You know, I would see them come into the show and, you know, they felt they knew him. Totally felt they knew him. And, you know, that's great. That's great. They may not actually know these people, but what a wonderful feeling from the living room side. I I couldn't agree more. It felt like it felt like they were extended family. Is absolutely the the um, the thought that I I had. One thing I wanted to mention is you're working on a book about behind the scenes goings on in TV. Um, can you talk about some of your best experiences? What they have been? At least oh God, name 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 a show and I'll give or a host and I'll give you a story. I mean. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I will. T- uh, all right. I will do that. That's uh, so tell me something about um, Dick Clark. Dick Clark was and I'm sorry that he's gone uh, in, in the vein of the way we were talking about Alex. He was um, able to work through any situation and he loved to work. He was some people would say a workaholic. The first time I was in his office, he was, I had an appointment with him. He was doing a radio show, a syndicated radio show, Rock Roll and Remember, it was called. He was up on the second floor in a radio studio recording this thing. And uh, he walked out in the middle of that, took the meeting with me. Then uh, somebody else came into the office while we would talk. He was the ultimate multitasker is where I'm going with this. And when he went back up to the radio studio, I mean, he, it was almost like mid-sentence. He picked up where he left off. You know, uh, he was just incredible with a work ethic. And um, the other thing about him was that um, where I, I've kind of lost my train of thought here. Um uh, I'll, I'll, uh, the train just left Grand Central Station at about 80 miles an hour. <laughs> Where was I going? With? Oh, yes, yes. Multitasking and uh, amazing ability to do things that require a clock in your head, if you will. You know, if you hold up three minutes sign from the stage manager, somehow he could take the show wherever it needed to go and wrap it up in three minutes. And the most amazing thing I ever saw with this clock in the head kind of thing as a broadcaster, you know, you, you get that clock in your head. And that's true, not just for him, but he had it to an extreme extent. They were doing promos, you know, where, hi, this is Dick Clark. Join me this afternoon at three here on WXYZ, the community minded station. You know, these kinds of promos you would do for 125 stations. Other hosts would do, you know, maybe five or 10 at a time. And the next tape, they would do five. Or, Dick would sit there or stand there actually on camera for a hundred promos. They were all 
to the second on time, you could see the guy, the state manager counting with his fingers down, and he was able to create a thought, not off the cue cards, a lot of this was ad lib, and he knew these stations, and he knew the anchor people on the news. It was amazing to me. Hi, this is Dick Clark. Join me on WSBT. Hey, it's Tacoma's greatest radio, you know, it's greatest Channel 9. We'll be on right before the news with Bob Bingbat and Kelly so-and-so, you know, and he would roll these things without an error, you know, reading call letters you know, X, Y, Q, T, Y, you know, they all start to sound alike and look alike, but not to him because he knew these stations. He knew them all. It was freaking amazing. And they had on the cue cards one time, you know, uh, K-C-A-L. And he said, no, that's K-Cal. I mean, he knew the way these stations identified themselves hmm. for a hundred stations. He'd been doing this his whole life, and it was just part of him. And that clock in the head thing, you know, guys would run a, sec- a two seconds short or run over by a second. Never, never with Dick. It was amazing. And he was constantly working on one thing or another during a show. He'd be taking uh, between, I say, that's 10 and 15 minutes between shows is what I mean to say, during a taping day. He would be taking calls about other projects that were happening. When I worked with him, I was told by his son, also Richard Dick, they call him Rack, Richard A. Clark, uh, as opposed to Dick. Mm. Rack would he told me, he says, you know, when it's time to introduce Dick, when I cue you, I don't care if you're telling a story or telling a joke. Dick is a time, uh, what can I say, master, you know, don't waste a moment. And Dick didn't in his life, taking multiple tasks and meetings simultaneously. So when I got the cue from Rack, I, I introduced Dick. I mean, you stop where you are. He liked that. He loved that. And when he was through, he handed you back the mic and you kept the rhythm going while well, he took his spot and they counted him down from 10 and he never stopped when he got down to zero right to the end of the show and at the end of the last show of the day he was in his freaking car and gone before I said goodbye to the you know he would say Dick Clark so long and he'd walk off the stage and get into the car and he was gone mm. the audience is still there and I'm saying thanks for coming you know and he's off to the next project he was amazing as a producer he was very much a okay uh, well, the people who don't like him call him a control freak. I would just simply say he was, um, he wanted things, uh, perfectionist. You know, he wanted things the way they should be or the way he thought they should be. And there was very little tolerance for, uh, you know, people who didn't know their job and couldn't perform, you know, on time, all the time when the moment came. So very much a perfectionist. Yeah, I, I, would, Clark. I would think in the history of showbiz, I mean, there there is very few... There are very few people who were consummate business people like Dick Clark. I mean, there's it, talk about a, a one man empire. It's uh, it's astounding how he how much he was he was doing. And at, at any given moment, it's 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 even a chain of restaurants for Pete's sake. Mm-hmm. Um, what about on a um, uh, the one who uh, succeeded him on 
New Year's Rockin' Eve, Ryan Seacrest. Ryan Seacrest. What about Ryan him? is amazing. I worked with him when he was 19. It was his second show. Uh, he was a kid. You know, he'd been in radio, which is the great training ground for developing a personality. And he met with uh, Merv Griffin. He befriended Merv and he befriended Dick because he wanted to learn what these guys had. But before, I mean, you, you know, it's not like a, you can learn all this stuff by conversation you learn it by doing trial and error however ryan at age 19 it was all smooth it's like he'd been on television his entire life and what i mean by that is the finer points you know when you turn to look at somebody on television if you turn the way you do in a living room or you know in, in real life you'd be out of frame because you when you turn you step back sort of to turn your body mm-hmm. however if you turn on television you need to remain in frame so you turn it's a different body movement and you never turn 90 degrees because then people are looking at your profile so when you're supposedly talking to somebody you're more at a 45 degree angle with each other and you know these are finer points that you would have to be on television to learn, uh, you know, how these little things happen. That's just one example, you know, of staying in frame, uh, you know, so the camera doesn't have to move to follow you. Uh, that's just like one tiny thing of a whole litany of special skills. And he walked on the set and he knew this and he could handle all of that. And the show I did with him was called Wild Animal Games. And he co-hosted with a live chimpanzee. Now, there's no, you cannot script of chimpanzee and they don't read cue cards, you know, and they do whatever it is that they're going to do and they'll climb on your shoulder or they'll bang, a, you know, pick up something in, on the set and start banging it or start making noise, you know, yelling and screaming. And uh, the first chip on TV was J. Fred Muggs on the Today Show and he started biting guests. The hosts he knew, but when people came on, he didn't know, he started biting them. Mm. And when Lee Merriweather, who was on the Today Show, put on a Halloween costume, J. Fred Muggs went out of his mind and started biting her because he didn't recognize her. So, I mean, chimps are uncontrollable is the point I'm making. And Ryan worked with this chimp, and whatever the chimp did, he made it part of it, it worked. It made it like it was supposed to be, or he adapted to it. He picked up the chimp, started banging something. And he said, well, I'll let me have that. And he would pick it up and bang it too. And the chimp would react. And it was just a party. I never saw anybody. I guess it's called improv, but with, with people, it's easier. <laughs> right. right. And it was, he had the, the professionalism, the polish, the polish of somebody who'd been around on TV his whole life, and he was 19. 19. So this had to be before American Idol. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He was, you know, it was his second show. Nobody knew who he was. And uh, I mean, seriously, it was a cable show. It was no big deal. And he worked his way up, yes, to American Idol and now to, you know, name it. And he has a little empire. You know, he owns the uh, uh, Kardashians show that's on E! and several other projects. Or, you know, he's an executive producer and has a piece of the action. So he's got that business mind. Uh, you know, that Dick Clark had and Merv Griffin had too. you know, Merv owned and created Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. And, and you know, he was also quite the businessman. So he he had all of that, but he had it so early. It's friggin amazing to me. I would watch him with my, my mouth hanging open. 
Right. I mean, that's, that's, and I, I remember noticing that on American Idol right from the beginning. I remember that first season and talk about a name I do not remember is R- Ryan Dinkelman. Uh, the, right. The, the other yeah. host who was gone after a year. I mean, it was right. clear not to knock him per se, but, you know, there was one who was going places and one who yeah. was not. And, uh, <laughs> and that was, you know, that show was live. And, you know, you, there were things that happened that you never even realized at home were miscued, you know, or went, went awry, uh, you know, and they would change the lineup. You know, supposedly this person was saying, and then we're going to do that. But with a live show, somebody's in a bathroom or somebody's not dressed or somebody's not ready or something is not right. Piece of the set, a, a prop or whatever. They would change the order of things. You never knew that at home, but he would just roll with it, you know. Although someone else would say, well, 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 we're supposed to do this now, but oh, are we ready? Oh, okay. You know, you would hear sometimes people do that on television. Oh, 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 we're, uh, oh okay. We're going to change things around, folks. Well, he never did that. He just made it work like it happened. Like it was supposed to be. Right, right. No, it, it, Brilliant. Name another show. Name another host. Well, I, I, uh, let me think. So that's. If you uh, want. I mean, it's your show. It is <laughs> <laughs> I um uh all right I'll ask one more about one more host because I already made a reference to him earlier um I was such a fan of Wink Martindale tell me something uh, about him he is consummate and he's a dear friend of mine and uh, we see each other socially as well um he is just fantastic he's so polished uh he's he's able to I don't know. He, he's got. He's from Jackson, uh, Mississippi, and he's got that uh, down home. I'm sorry, Jackson, Tennessee. I think yes. Uh, uh, but that whole Southern boy. Uh, he's got the uh, manners and the charm, and he's so perfectly polished. And uh, there's no. I mean, working with him is just a thrill. And he's one of the guys who will look at you from the corner of his eye that nobody else spots because occasionally he just needs uh, a breath, you know, needs somebody to say something so he can get reorganized. You know, we, we became hand in glove that kind of way. It was, we were able to read each other. And uh, that was rare that he needed something, but it was a thrill for me to be able to support him at those moments. And I think it, uh, it was very generous of him to do that. So, you know, he uh, was the first person to put Elvis Presley on television. He grew up down in the South or, and he was at the radio station, WHBQ, the first time an Elvis record was played. It was, that's all right, mama. It came as a test pressing. They played it on the air. The phones lit up. They played it again. And then they called uh, Elvis's home. His mother said he's at the movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's a small town. Which, which movie? Well, he's over at the, you know, the, the Cinema 3, whatever it was called. And they sent somebody to the Cinema 3 to get him out of the movie and down to the radio station where they put him on the air. And he talked about his first record and then uh, Wink had a TV dance show in addition to a radio show and he had him he was the first guy to put him on TV first interview and he had the smarts even though it was a live show no tape no film tape wasn't even invented I don't think Uh, no film and he invited somebody who generally films weddings to come down and film this interview with Elvis knowing that 
Elvis was going somewhere, you know. It was very early early in his career. He had one or two hits, but uh, Wink knew it was great, and he's got the first interview on film, and uh, it's wonderful. It's uh, he's been around that long, and is a spot uh, spotter of great talent, and on camera he's as polished as anybody could be. And working with him was was a thrill. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like pure genius tic-tac-toe which he was the host of as i mentioned earlier it was was just such a simple yet elegant and engrossing kind of show i mean the problem i've had with certain game shows since i'll i'll opine on this on my own is that you know some game shows to me are just too clunky too complicated there are too many there was a show and i'm gonna knock him i know he's a legend and unfortunately he's passed away but uh, uh, there was a show that dick clark hosted like in the early 2000s there was something something lines do you remember that that one? yes a winning line winning lines which i thought was just terrible I, very I, clunky it had like 50 <laughs> people on stage it was or, just, you know on a big set yeah I, I remember it was like his kind of to kind of get back into doing game shows and I thought this is an example of them not thinking this through and trying too hard and mm-hmm. you know it's it's the simplest shows that often are the best and uh, but that's hard you know you can't you can't like sometimes script simple it's it's just gotta flow organically and that's it, why yeah. And, and uh, yeah, it's it, it, you know they were trying way too hard to uh, to be larger than life, you know. And uh, a good game show you could, should be able to describe it in two sentences, you know, three at the most. That's right. You know, it shouldn't be that complicated because folks at home aren't they're not there to learn. They don't know this is off time. It's entertainment. What's going on? Anytime somebody at home says, "Well, I don't understand why is she answering that? Well, why are they?" You know. You're dead. You're dead in the water right there. And that show, Winning Lions, was a perfect example of it. I was on the same lot. They did that at uh, General Cinema. They they called it Hollywood. Uh, what the hell did they call it there? Uh, yeah, Hollywood Center Studios on Las Palmas Boulevard. I was on the same lot doing a different show, and they were doing Winning Lions. And I would stick my head in there and just shake my head you know, to myself, saying, what the hell? The set was like 25. 30 feet high, you had people sitting like in the, in the shape of a pyramid, you know, way up on, they had to climb ladders to get into the position. And, you know, they were answering questions on Moss, you know, how many people said this, how many people said that, who, you know, pick somebody, tell me what you think they said to this uh, way too much, way too much. So I have one more question before we go. And I just, who, who are the people or maybe person who have surprised you the most when you've gotten to meet them or work with them? Maybe you had a preconceived notion and then in either good or bad, you just were, were surprised by them. Um, I'm surprised by a number of people. I'll give you a name in a second. I'm trying to think it through, but I've been surprised two ways. One, the guy is absolutely nothing like he is in person as he is on television. And the other surprise is this guy is so friggin' charming, even more so than he is on TV. And I say that about Tom Kennedy, for example. Mm. What, uh, you know, it, I, I can't begin to tell you what a sweet guy this is. 
uh, we've lost him, you know, kind of recently. And uh, he would have kids over to his house to serve ice cream. I mean, it, it was, you know, it was wonderful. He was just a dear, dear man and very bright, um, brightest man in the room, always. Uh, so I was surprised in that sense that what a real great guy this is even more so than on television and then i've worked with people who are lesser uh, human beings than they appear to be on tv and uh, i don't know whether i should really go there by the book when it comes out uh, I, will. I will no that's uh, that's fair that's fair no that's uh um I, you know that's 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 good i will say on my own um not that i have the experience you do but i uh got to meet Julianne Moore about 20 in the actually 20 years ago, the year 2000 in, in um, <clears throat> Washington square park where she was with her two year old son at the time, who I guess would be 22 now. And mm. I could not tell you for talking to a stranger like me, just had a conversation with her. I could not believe how nice she was. So like just asking me all about myself, just very um, sweet and endearing. Mm. I talked about some of her movies and, and so forth. And not that I thought that there was anything wrong with her prior to that, but you know, she had kind of an aloof, maybe mm. you know, like, a, like a, a, a screen persona, you know, a serious actress and meeting her in person and talking to her. She was so warm and inviting it, it, it so there are people like that out there that are um, oh my god yes nice. and I'll tell you you know the industry is less willing to put up with prima donnas and, and, and you know tough people uh, and the folks who have succeeded for the most part they really uh, are and I'm talking about not just game shows I'm talking about actors as well people want to work with people who are easy to work with and that would be true in any job so the people who are you know really nice it's such a simple word you want to make something find another word for it because it's such a, a, a engrossing wide swath of their personality but nice i guess sums it up best these are the people that you want to work with and they tend to rise to the top when you see somebody who's you know achieved greatness or you know great fame or uh, you know for the most part they tend to be really sweet people there are some extreme examples of people you know, who are contrary to that and um, less and less, fewer and fewer as time goes, goes by. Well, Randy West is a television broadcaster and the author of Johnny Olson, A Voice in Time. Check out that book and look for his forthcoming book soon. Randy, thank you very much. For oh, my God, this was a thrill. This was uh, totally enjoyable. And I thank you for thinking of me and, and giving me the chance to shoot off my mouth. <laughs> well, we'll we'll have this. We'll have you on again and we'll we'll continue this conversation because it's been it's been remarkable. So thank, thank you, Art. <laughs> Pleasure. And we will be right back. What a great remembrance of some of the classic personalities and television shows of the past 50 years. I am thankful to know Randy West and some other entertainers over the years. And these experiences have enriched my life. I am thankful for being able to do The Nexus and for my partner, Colin Martin, who has served as executive producer and a creative force behind the show since its inception. With Thanksgiving looming in what for many has been the worst year of our lives, it might be more difficult than usual to give thanks. 
How can we be thankful when we've lost loved ones to coronavirus, watched our nation engulfed in the nastiest election campaign in modern memory, with rioting and looting a feature in many of our cities, with struggles by Black Americans taking on a particular significance due to the supreme injustice that reigns in some of our police departments? There are a multitude of other things to criticize in our world, but I want to take time, despite all that, to talk about everything I am thankful for on a daily basis. It helps me be more appreciative of what I have. In no particular order, I am thankful that I am healthy. That could change at any time, but I made it to another birthday this month in good shape. Thankful for great friends and family who have been there for me in a trying time. Thankful for career, being blessed to have work to do, and able to pursue what I enjoy and be paid well for it. Glad I am still athletic enough to be able to box, which I've done a lot more of this year, and to be able to weight train. Glad that I own two motorcycles and have the chance to go riding for pleasure and have that spiritual experience when I'm on the open road. Thankful for a strong police force, many of whom are my friends and the protection they give our communities. Thankful that smartphones exist so that I can spend hours finding entertainment and illumination right at my fingertips. Thankful for music. Those who know me are well aware that I am encyclopedic in my knowledge of music, and during the day I am constantly indulging in new and old favorites, from rock to jazz, pop to a growing interest in what might be called world music. I'm thankful for having been a teacher, being able to interact with young minds and hopefully instruct them in lessons they will apply in their daily lives moving forward. Even though I'm not doing much of it right now, Thankful for travel and the places I've gone worldwide, each of which has informed my outlook in some unique way. Thankful for strong cigars, sweet bourbon, great IPA, fresh fish, grilling on the barbecue, and the New York Times cooking app, which allows me to experiment in preparing new recipes I never thought possible. Thankful for the Second Amendment, which allows me to own firearms and go to the range to shoot them on a regular basis. I'm thankful that the candidate I donated to and worked for won the presidential election and that I had a hand in making that happen. I'm thankful that the world's best scientists are working as we speak to create and distribute a vaccine that will make living safe again. Maybe then I'll be able to stay over at my mom's place, travel to Africa once more, and not worry about kissing someone. The name of the game in life is persevering. We've had to do that in 2020, and all of us should consider that when we think about what we are thankful for. This is a worthy exercise. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. Leave a rating as well. Happy Thanksgiving, and we will see you next time. Be well. Thank you.